about the incarnate word Jesus. <clears throat> now, to give you a kind of a little context <clears throat> to think about this, from day one, the actual person of Jesus has been the subject of intense debate. In fact, the first six great councils of the church all had some aspect of Jesus' incarnation as a matter of discussion. For example, the first council of Nicaea in 318, from which we get the Nicene Creed, dealt with whether Jesus was eternal or whether he was a created being, which is a heresy called Arianism, after its primary opponent, Arius. Which is also, of course, if you've heard the Christmas legend, that supposedly at the Council of Nicaea, when Arius was proposing his thoughts about Jesus, that St. Nicholas punched him. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but I sure hope it is. <laughs> the Council of Chalcedon in 520 dealt with the relationship between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature, right? Which is where we get the idea. You have probably heard <clears throat> the idea of Jesus as fully man and fully God, or the God-man. That comes from the Council of Chalcedon. I remember in seminary, in my theology class on the church councils. So, so the two Greek words that refer to this, this idea, right, are homoousis and homo homoousis. And I'm trying to think of myself, can you imagine those guys debate? Did you mean homoousis or homoousis? It's no wonder they were so much controversy. One of the earliest controversies about Jesus came from a man who actually lived in John's time named Serathus. Now, Serathus taught that Christ was a spiritual being who came down on the man Jesus at his baptism, but then left him before he was crucified. Okay, so you can imagine, you know, the dove of the Spirit comes down on Jesus at his baptism, right? And then Jesus becomes the Christ at his baptism, but then just before his crucifixion, the Christ leaves him to die on the cross which sounds awfully rude to me. So just Jesus was a man, he becomes Christ, his baptism, he's a man again in his crucifixion. And it, this idea came about because Serathus was very offended <coughs> at the idea that God would allow himself to die on the cross. Now, of course, you probably see the problem with this view because it eliminates an important part of the atonement, which is the fact of Jesus being God on the cross, making his death sufficient for all the sin in the world. That's just one of the numerous false ideas about Jesus that circulated at that time. And in the modern idea, we still have this, right? For example, the idea that Jesus was created and is Lucifer's brother. Or the idea that Jesus is just one way God appears, one mode. It's called modalism. And the Father and the Spirit are other modes that God appears in. But they're not actually persons of the Godhead. So this modalism or oneness doctrine denies the Trinity. And since it's Trinity Sunday today, I don't know how much you know that. If you don't follow the church calendar, you don't know that the Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. But the idea of, of this oneness or modalism denies the Trinity which has been the orthodox understanding 
of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit since the First Council of Nicaea. So we need to absolutely make sure that the Jesus that we have a relationship with, that the Jesus we love and we worship and whose commands we follow, is the real Jesus. We want and we need confidence that Jesus is both real and who he says he is, and that he can do what he says he will do and is done. There's lots of ideas about Jesus, and there's plenty of false Jesus figures, but only one meets the qualifications that John is about to set forth. Only one as the testimony of God himself, even beyond the eyewitness testimony that we have from the apostles. <clears throat> so John is going to ask us to consider the testimony of Jesus, or about Jesus, of God himself. In verses 6-9 of chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. <clears throat> so John tells us there's three testimonies God has made about his Son. There's, he demonstrates who his son is through water, through blood, and through his spirit. Before we get to the issue of the spirit's testimony, we need to think about what is he talking about with the water and the blood. Now, I think the blood is the easiest of those, right? Because the blood is assuredly what we just celebrated and reminded ourselves in the Lord's table. The blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The entire life and ministry of Jesus culminates on the cross. Sin and death are paid for on the cross by his blood. I find it interesting. John doesn't say the water and the resurrection. But if you've noticed, in all of 1 John, I don't think John has mentioned the resurrection once. But it's interesting because Paul always talks about the resurrection as the ultimate proof of Jesus, who he said he is. Well, you can lay awake at night thinking about that tonight, because I don't have a good answer for that. So. That's turning your brain down. See, it's good enough, because I said that. You're going to be just about to fall asleep, and you're going to remember that I said that, and you're going to be like, oh, pastor. So then to fully grasp what John, we know what the blood is, what's the, what we have to understand what's meant by the water. Now, some really early commentators, some of the church fathers had the idea that this referred to the water that came from Jesus' side when the Roman centurion pierced him while on the cross. If you remember that right at the cross, you know, the Roman soldier takes his spear. If you know the legend, the Roman soldier's name is Longinus. Right? Did you know that? You guys didn't know that? You ever heard of the Longinus lance, the spear that pretty? Yeah, okay. Great, great legend. It supposedly had magical powers because it pierced it. <laughs> you can go home and look it up on the web. Alright. The point is that you know the story. He pierces Jesus' side 
with the spear, and out comes water mixed with blood, right? Because, of course, the doctor will tell you that you pierced the pericardium of the heart. Now, the problem with this view that that's what the water is here is, first of all, it's kind of a weird way for God to testify that Jesus is who he says he is. But beyond that, uh, John's gospel is the only gospel that recalls that part of the crucifixion. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And he talks about it in John 19.34. But there, he says, blood and water. Blood mixed with water. Reversed from the order in 1 John. And there's little reason to think that an author, the same author would reverse the order of something so significant if he's talking about the same thing. And so most modern scholars reject this view. The most common view is that the water refers to the baptism of Jesus. For example, it's recorded in Matthew 3, 13-17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So that is a, a pretty blatant way that God the Father confirms who Jesus is. And of course, what's amazing about Jesus' baptism is that we have the Father speaking from heaven, commending Jesus, this is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. We have the Spirit descending on him like a dove, that sort of thing. Um, and this is the first public appearance of Jesus as an adult, right? His ministry begins after this. He's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. He returns and he speaks in the synagogue, he begins choosing his disciples, and his ministry goes from there the inauguration of his earthly ministry. So you have the water as the baptism. And of course, God's testimony there, the blood, is death on the cross. And I think when you put the two of them together, we can even add into that that the water and the blood are the ends, the beginning and the end of his earthly ministry. Inaugurates his ministry at his baptism. His earthly ministry ends after the crucifixion. He rises, appears to his disciples, and ascends to heaven. And so together we have the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Now, if you think back, if you know much about John's gospel, in John 20, 31, he says that he writes these things so that we may believe. Now, in verse 13 of 1 John 5, which we're going to get to in just a second. He says he writes this letter so that those who believe may know they have eternal life. So if we take the water and the blood and the testimony of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism and throughout the Scriptures, we have what we need to know about who Jesus really is. In fact, we know the Spirit inspires the testimony of the prophets and all the Scriptures to point to Jesus. Jesus himself says, John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness about me, right? You remember the story, maybe? He's having some conflict with the religious authorities. And he basically says, well, look, you guys keep digging through the Old Testament, thinking that you're going to, gonna, you know, have eternal life because of the law. But it all it all is meant to point to me. It's meant to tell you about me. So I think if you put all this together, John's telling us if you want to know the real Jesus and you really want to know who he is and that he's truly the Son of God who died and rose again, and you really want to know that you have eternal life, then just look at the testimony the scriptures bear about him, especially his life and ministry, from his baptism to his crucifixion. Look at how he lived. Look at how he died. Look at how he loved people. Look at what he taught. Look at the miracles and everything else that we can know about him. Look at all of that. And all of those together are testimony that God has given us about his son, Jesus. It's all there. All you have to do is look at it. And see, when we come to know the true Jesus, as presented in the testimony of God, and all the overwhelming evidence that for who Jesus is, we can have the assurance that we have eternal life. Verses 9 through 13. If we receive the testimony of men, that was how he started the letter, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has that testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So we get to verse 13 finally there. We finally get to the ultimate reason John has written all these things in his letter. Now, I don't, I don't know, I don't know why he didn't put that in verse 3 of chapter 1. That would have been really handy, right? Just tell me right out from the beginning why you wrote the letter, and let's go from there. But he doesn't. And he doesn't do that in his gospel either. I was reading this book, I read, I read this book, I finished it a couple weeks ago. As I'm reading this book, I'm trying to figure out how this author understands the role of the scriptures. Because he definitely understands it differently than I do. And that's fine. So I'm going to be wrong. Um, no, trust me, if you guys read this book, you'll also think he was very wrong. Finally, in chapter 9 of this book, he explains how he understands the role of the scriptures. And I'm thinking, bro. If you have put this in chapter 1, I'd have had a much easier time getting through your book because I wouldn't have read chapters 2 and whatever after that. <laughs> anyway, well, we get to verse 13 here, and he tells us why. And so all, all, those, all those tests John has, right, and all the hard sayings and all his emphasis on loving God and loving others and obeying Jesus' commands, right? We called that the circle of love last week. Remember this from last week? Okay, some of you were here, some of you weren't. This is the circle of love, right? That John constantly talks about loving God and loving others and obeying Jesus, but, but they're all just the same thing to him. They're all different aspects of the same thing. They're all meant to go together. You can't have one without the other. Because he says you can't, love, can't claim to love God 
if you don't love others. But you also can't claim to love God if you aren't keeping his commandments. But if you're keeping his commandments, it shows that you love God. But if you keep his commandments, you know that you'll be loving others. John wants us to have assurance that we have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. The Greek has two primary words for to know. Nosko and oida. Nosko, which we use words like gnostic and gnosticism, has more to do with like intellectual or experiential knowledge. Oida is often used with, for things like how we perceive or understand things. John wants us to understand if we have eternal life or not. He wants to fully understand if we have eternal life. He wants us to be assured of that. And how we understand or perceive that is by looking at the various things he has pointed out that connect us to the true Jesus and then comparing our lives to what John has outlined. So we take the testimony of God about Jesus, right, which is Jesus, as presented in the scriptures, in his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, we look at the work of the Spirit in our lives. And if we truly believe that testimony, and we see it at work in our lives, right, the circle, the circle thing, okay, the loving others and, and obeying Jesus, we will experience this testimony of the Spirit that theologians call the internal testimony. Or maybe if you've grown up in the church, when we were, when I was a kid, the pastor used to talk about the assurance of salvation. The eternal testimony is the work of the Spirit in our hearts that assures us that we have eternal life because we have truly trusted and believed in the true Jesus. Now, notice the internal testimony relies on the external testimony of God and the Scriptures through His Spirit. People sometimes get this backwards. That somehow their internal testimony is then going to help them to trust the scriptures. It's, it's really the other way around. And the reason for that is because the internal testimony can be affected by a variety of things. Maybe you didn't sleep well last night. Right? See, I can see James is yawning right now. I didn't sleep well last night. And normally he's glued to the edge of his pew. <laughs> you watch him. Maybe you had an argument with your spouse or with a friend. Maybe you ate a bad burrito. Right? Or maybe some sin that we committed that we haven't yet repented of is, is causing us to, to not receive that internal assurance. Because that internal assurance can be upset by certain things. In fact, I, I would argue that one of the purposes of the internal assurance, or the internal testimony, is that when we are lacking in it, it should cause us to evaluate why we are lacking in it. Now, maybe it was you're just tired or whatever, you're just not feeling it. Or maybe it is that some sin was committed and, and we need to, we hurt somebody and we need to go apologize to them and settle that issue. It could be a lot of things. My college students back in the day, they used to talk about this as not feeling saved. I just don't feel saved today. They used to say. 
What they really meant is that at that moment, they were lacking the internal testimony or the assurance of the Spirit. So that's why we have to base our understanding of our relationship with God on what God has said, the testimony of God, and not how we feel. Faith and facts have to rule over feelings. Now that's not to say that your feelings, your emotions aren't important. I mean, God didn't create them after all. They aren't there by accident. But they aren't as reliable because they can be affected by numerous variables. Whereas the facts of who Jesus is, what he has done, and our relationship with him because of his work are not affected by other variables. You can look at those things, the testimony of God in the scriptures, and you can look at the circle of love and go, am I obeying his commands and am I loving God and am I loving other people and stuff? And you can look at those facts and see where you stand. This is what I think makes John's letter so important. Because as he now tells us his purpose, we can see why he has presented so many hard truths. I mean, as we've gone through this the last few months, how many times have I said something, you know, read something in First John to you, and you're just like, that world. He just does not mince words. Do we really love others? Do we really obey Jesus' commands? Do we really believe in the real Jesus? And we can evaluate our lives by those truths and help to eliminate some of the emotional variables. So as, as we're at the end of John, he, he's kind of come full circle, right? When he first started, he talks about Jesus as the basis of reality, his testimony about that they saw him and that, you know, he was real and that sort of thing. And that Jesus is eternal life, and that he's in fact also the message that carries eternal life. And now we're back to Jesus again, but except now the testimony of God about his son, and then for us to look at our lives and know that we have eternal life. So let me just remind you some things that John has asked us along the journey through his letter, so that you can know that you have eternal life. These are kind of John's tests. Right? Are we walking in the light by practicing truth? Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Are we honest about our sin and dealing with it? Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Not that you're sinless. That'd be nice. I'd really like that. My wife would like that even more if I was sinless. Right? But do we, does, do we, are we honest about our sin? We're dealing with it. Do we desire and strive to keep his commands and practice righteousness? Chapter 2, verses uh, 3 and 4, and chapter 3, verse 10. Do we love others? Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Do we strive to choose the will of God over the things of the world? Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, right? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Are we abiding in the teaching of the scriptures? Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Are we experiencing the presence of the Spirit? Chapter 4, verse 13. Are we trusting the testimony of God about Jesus over any other thing? Including how we feel at any given time. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. I put all these in your outline and bulletin so you can have. If you look at those eight areas that John has identified, and you can evaluate your life according to them. In areas might be lacking, repent where necessary. Pray for wisdom and direction. And 
and apply the scriptures in faith to move more into conformity with Christ. Better, better this year than last year. More like Jesus this year than last year. It's always the goal, right? God's goal is for you to be like his son Jesus. That means every year, every month, whatever, hopefully we're moving a little bit more like Jesus. All the time. A little bit more. If we put our faith and trust in the real Jesus, John tells us we can be assured of eternal life in his presence. And that assurance is ultimately based on the testimony of what God himself has said about his son Jesus, not on how we feel about it at any given time. We can assure, experience that assurance by responding to what God has said and putting it into practice every day. Putting into practice the truths of God's testimony about Jesus will reassure us of his infallible grace and that we have received his mercy and eternal life. You can know, I can know, we all can know that we have eternal life. It's in Jesus. God has told us everything we need to know about Jesus and his word. Let's pray. Father, I feel like on our communion Sunday, John's words about Jesus are, are extra powerful. We think of the physical reminder of Jesus coming in the flesh and dying for us, the blood shed for us. And then as we think of how we can know we have eternal life, when we believe in the real Jesus that's presented in the scriptures, the test, your testimony about him, and then we can evaluate our lives according to the things John has said, and be reassured that we are abiding in Christ, that we have eternal life. Help us to be more like your son every year, every month, and every week, and every day. And to give you the glory for it in Jesus' name.